Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. You may have missed us last week, we apologise. We were in the rush of back to school, as I'm sure you were, so we did feel your pain, although your pain would have been, of course, much worse. But we're back this week. Uh, Dan Worth, hello. Hi there. Gronya, hello. Hello. And we've got a lovely issue, the 10th of September issue, and we're going to give you some highlights now. So the first feature up this week, Dan, is all about hacking. Yes, this is a subject very close to my heart in a way because You're a I'm. Uh, let me let me finish the sentence. I feel like a politician here. If you let me finish, <laughs> um, I as I may have mentioned occasionally, I used to be a technology journalist and I used to write a lot about cybersecurity and hacking and organisations that were hacked and the Information Commissioner's Office issuing fines and all that kind of stuff. And and it's an it's a fascinating, scary, you know, forever changing world. And it's one that increasingly the education sector is being wrapped up in. Um, and it probably always was a little bit. But it's quite clear from this cover feature by Simon Creasy that it's becoming a much bigger issue. And I think it was when the National Cybersecurity Centre issued a kind of warning at some point, I think it was earlier this year, to the education uh, sector saying you need to be aware of the increased threat from hackers. That you, the, the, so that sort of reached that kind of critical threshold of this is important and this is affecting you. Just because you're like a small school or you know, you're a mid-sized man and you're thinking, well, no one would surely come after, come after us. They will, and they do. And these aren't, as it says in the piece, these aren't, you know, teenagers in their bedroom doing this for a bit of a laugh. These are proper sophisticated criminals, um, and there's money to be made from it. And, you know, given the important data schools hold, they are a target. You know, you've got assessment data, you've got private data on people, you've got information on where people live. You know, it's, it's important stuff. You know, you've got a whole year's worth of data going back on uh, assessments and you know, people's you know progress and all that kind of stuff. And if you lose that suddenly, and it talks about in the piece, people quite open and admit that, you know, if you lose that, wow, what a situation you're in. And, and I've always writing about this as a sort of final point, always writing about this. And so often it always came down, came down to two things, which was human error, some of which was sort of understandable, often though it wasn't. And it came down to a lack of investment in this until, of course, it was too late. And it's one of these things where you'll never know until it's too late. And if you are listening to this and you do have a sort of sense of, do we have a good security system or have staff been trained recently about what phishing attacks actually look like in this day and age? I would think you need to go and do it right away because you definitely don't want to be one of those schools that sort of, ah, we've lost all our data. (laughs) the, The things that struck me were one that, these hackers are sophisticated enough to see not just from news reports that you know schools were doing online learning but they like i think one of the people featured said oh the um whoever cleans up cybercrime so the cyber police i don't know um they said the hackers would have noticed the increase of traffic through the website and would have known that because it was high usage therefore you know it's more of a target and the second thing was that they don't care that it's a school like that you'd expect some sort of moralistic compass around this but it's not like they're saying oh let's not hit hospitals or schools because you know they're doing good stuff they they literally don't care and i think that's quite a there's a human nature aspect to it (laughs) it's not just they don't care they know that that makes them even more vulnerable don't they but it's it's awful and i think you know i remember when some of these stories were being shared on twitter that that horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach thinking how must it feel to be a teacher at that school or the head teacher at that school and to get that message and think oh, like the just the future like unfurling in front of you and you can see that the disaster that you've got to have to deal with or because of another person's greed it's it's just awful so bad things happen in schools all the time and usually it's it's circumstance and it's, it's an accident and you know it's things that you couldn't see coming 
this is just so awful for schools to deal with because it could be avoided and it's all and it is it's all down to people's greed and I, it's just awful well it, well it is i mean it's actually worth saying here there are the very rare stories where hackers do ethically decide realize they've hit a hospital or something and they do return the money and i feel like that's kind of it's one of these funny things that happens occasionally you do get these ethical hackers that kind of think oh we didn't mean to hit school we meant to hit a private business kind of because that's okay and whatever but yeah you're it's very unlikely you're going to send an email saying oh do you realize you've hacked a school and that's oh terribly sorry here have your data back <laughs> so um but it's a fascinating one and the world of, of cyber security and cyber crime and you have, you have ethical hackers who, who hack in but immediately say look we've hacked in and we can now fix this problem and that's how they get business and you know bug bounty programs where people are encouraged to find the problems but again to report them you know increase swiftly and get a, get a reward for that so it's a fascinating sector and it's really hard and i don't think anyone listening to this who feels like oh crikey i don't know anything about that should feel bad about that it is really hard and you know and if, if it involves paying a consultant or a company to come in and do some testing that's probably the best option because trying to in-house this if you don't have someone who's got very good it skills will is not really going to cut it and i don't think the information commissioner's office for example would kind of go oh well we asked you know so-and-so who's done it who did you know who knows a bit around about powerpoint they do really good transitions in PowerPoint. And we ask them to look at the our cybersecurity. It's, you know, it's going to take something more than that. And I think, it, but it is hard. And it's, again, a bit, I suppose, like anything like CPD or whatever, it doesn't stop. And just because you did it last year, you think, well, we're fine now for five years. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work like that. But again, if budgets are stretched and there's many competing priorities, and it's not something that, in a way, it's like if you spend the money on it, you don't want to, you don't want it, you won't see a return on it because you won't be hacked. And that's, so it's hard to sort of, justify that way but but that's kind of what you want isn't it so yeah a complex area for sure i I thought it was amazing as well in the terms of the amount of data that you realize schools hold and this awakening of of schools as information centers and data processing centers and we did a lot on gdpr when that came in and that was a thought i think the first sort of real awakening in schools that we've got some very valuable data assets here and i think this i I can't remember the exact percentage of increase but this huge increase in cyber attacks on schools is the sort of second wave of that awakening of oh hang on a minute you know look at how much data is protected in the nhs for example and and just getting anything done i mean they don't even share data between departments in, in the nhs is hard enough Whereas, you know, you're heading to that sort of point in schools and how much is in schools is still written down in jotters or in the back of diaries and, you know, jotted down for later and there's these loose bits of paper everywhere. You know, it's we, we're getting to that level where schools are becoming so technolog- technologically sophisticated that these real ethical and legal questions around data are, are going to be more present. And you think, well, hang on a minute, whose job is that? Is Are we going to ask head teachers to be... The data guardians, is, the, you know, is it a new SLT position? Well, is it a you, new job? Should, you should have a data protection officer if you have an organisation of, of over yeah. 250. Who's, who's the fellow who's going to sit there with all the photocopying and, and scan it and upload it? And it's the like the passport thing. Do you remember a few, I say a few years ago, it's because I'm old and everything feels like a few years ago. But, you know, some time ago when we had to make sure we all had passports for all the teachers and all staff that worked in a school and you had to have it photocopied and you had a physical photocopy of it in your file well most schools are now going digital and so you don't have those physical copies anymore it's all got to have be uploaded onto a computer who does that mm. job yeah and it, where's the funding for it and that, that's what this comes down to i mean the guy in the piece is talking about yeah there's loads of options when you get hacked if you've got loads of money like you know but the reality of it is unless you've got like you said dan unless you've 
spent a bit of money up front, you're gonna it's gonna cost you. You either lost the data, which is catastrophic for everyone involved, or you're gonna have to spend money schools don't have. So I think in terms of funding, the government sort of has to wake up to this and say, actually, this is some ring fence money to get your data protection and your security systems up to speed but it doesn't look like it's coming <laughs> well it's just, it's just another thing to do isn't it and i think the final point which you said as well is like you said a minute ago is that you know this stuff is happening because you can just hire these cyber hacking tools like you know on, off the web you don't need to build them yourself anymore if you're if you're an unscrupulous person you could just go somewhere and hire a, a tool almost or you know buy the software and just launch it or something and see what happens you know it's that's how advanced and this stuff's got now so it's not these kind of high-end groups it can just be someone who's a bit knows their way around a bit of code and is nefarious yeah. it's worth saying that simon's feature just lays this out very starkly mm. but he also has some really good take-home points that schools can use to to um tackle this well not tackle it but as you say dan preventative measures and a lot of it's for free from the um, information commissioner's office and some of the other government websites that have set up you know some of the basic stuff at least is is there for you so have a read um we'd love to know your own policies in-house do get in touch and we'd love to have more on this issue and more more discussion around it so um please do get in touch okay number two feature we're going to look at this week Gronya, and this is this is controversial but should it be i guess is the question oh it's very controversial so alex quigley has written the piece that i'm going to talk about and it's all about the connection between poor behavior and poor vocabulary and it's a, it's a piece of research. It's really like a lot of data crunching, like a lot of number crunching piece of research because they looked at um, the national cohort study. So you've got the, the millennium children that were born in the millennium year and then you've got the ones that were born in the 1970s and it's comparing the, the data that they've got on them for vocabulary and saying, you know, what, what are the connections? And it's... It's really, it's not surprising, but it's ever so depressing to see that students who've got poor behaviour also seem to have poor vocabulary. And Alex talks about how these two things are linked and, you know, what what is it that schools can actually do? You know, and to what extent is this a school problem and what extent is it a society problem? And, you know, do they, he says at one point, you know, do they co-concur as one causing or exacerbating the other? And that's really when I think about like what life is like in the classroom, when you've got, you've got students who are misbehaving, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Like, which bit is it? Is it that the students have poor vocabulary, therefore can't articulate themselves, therefore struggling in school and that impacts on their behaviour? Or is it the other way around, they have poor behaviour, therefore missing more time out of school? and that consequently have a, a week of a, a less wide vocabulary or it's probably i think on balance possibly a bit of both but you know i'm really interested what, what what do you think when you think about poor behavior and vocabulary do you think that it's inevitable that if you have poor behavior you have poor, be, poor vocab or actually no. is it it's it's not is it like I, I think you get some incredibly articulate challenging children <laughs> but i would say that there's a there's a, probably a misnomer that I don't know if it's vocabulary because that you have to have an emotional vocab vocabulary as well. And I think I can think of very high attaining children who didn't have an emotional vocabulary. And I think when you've got your own kids and you see how they frustrated they get about not you're not understanding them and 
I think I think a lot of the time we look for simplistic reasons for behavior and I think sometimes we have to give step back a bit and say hang on a minute like is there a pattern here and this is why like behavior tracking software and I know Amy Forrester who talks to us a lot on the podcast and writes a lot for Tez she she talks about this finding the patterns you know when is this happening when is the behavior happening and what sort of lessons is it happening and oh hang on a minute it's starting at the it's at the start of every lesson or it's at the sharing of the work stage and you're thinking okay is there, there's an anxiety around this and I'm not saying that all poor behavior is down to challenges of that nature but I think a very high proportion comes from a sense of frustration or embarrassment or and it doesn't necessarily have to be vocabulary or the sort of vocabulary that's linked to attainment is my meandering point I've made there well, it shows, isn't it? It is not it its a complex one. And I think you said something about that, like, you know, that not being understood. And I think that must play a part because it, we all know what, how frustrating that is and not to feel like someone's understanding you and you, you try and explain and, and they still don't get it. And you sort of feel like, well, what am I saying wrong? Or, you know, and then when you're young, obviously that then turns into frustration. And then the next time, rather than trying, you just, you just lash out, like you say, because you're, you're scared about what's coming. And again, I'm like you, John, it's, it's so hard to say this stuff without massively oversimplifying, but there must be a sort of kernel of truth in that, that we all kind of, we all sort of grasping at that kind of idea. And of course there's going to be situations that are different, but I think broadly, yes, if you have a better vocabulary, then you can, um, if it pronounce that word more correctly, but you, you're going, <laughs> presumably you would less likely to end up in in a poor behavior situation because you can try and say what you want before you have to reach to that level. But I don't know, how do you tackle that? And is that, is that more of a thing that starts in primary Do, do primary schools need to, I mean, I know they do now. I mean, I think there's a lot more, isn't there on emotional regulation and all that kind of stuff. And what, how do you do that? And there's just, um, some, uh, international teacher has written about this recently for us with some great sort of strategies for working on self-regulation with the YFS children and based on the new guidance that's come out. And that, that strikes me as that seems like a good way of trying to change that. And hopefully maybe in another 20 years, if we did more policy, you might find that's had an impact maybe if you if, if it works. I think we've got to define challenging behaviour as well. I mean, Gornia, how many kids did you teach who were, who were very articulately taking you apart? You know, who were oh, using... I know. And, but you know what? They wouldn't be labelled as having behaviour problems because children who are very articulate and are very clever but have... Uh, do cause problems with, with behaviour are normally so smart they don't get caught. Yeah, They're the exactly, ones that it's yeah. really, really difficult to pin anything on. They might be bullying other children. They might be um, involved in sort of like that kind of low-level crime that you get in schools. There'll be ones that you continually try and catch, but you can't. And they're not they don't get labelled as behaviour problems because their behaviour problems are very, very different and can be almost overlooked, if you like, when you have other children exhibiting behaviour problems that cannot be ignored because they're actually physically hurting other children or it's disrupting the learning. But it's still disruptive. It's still a behaviour problem. It's just a different kind of behaviour problem. And I also read this and I think, well, you know, and Alex kind of touches on this, you, you might be able to improve their vocabulary and we'd have schools full of children who are beautifully articulate and have a really wide range of vocab and are able to, to use these words and sentences. And, you know, that's all great. And we still have behaviour problems because the behaviour is not the vocabulary issue. It's not just because mm. we solve the vocab, suddenly their behaviour will be improved. And similarly, if you 
got them all behaving really well wouldn't necessarily mean that their vocabulary would all improve. I think there's there's more stuff mm. going on here and perhaps we're we're seeing a link between two things that isn't as it's, I'm not saying it's not a link and it's not, you know, it's not an important connection, but it's perhaps not as strong as we might suspect. It's a good point, isn't it? Because also like, and it's a bit of a sort of bleak reality, but how many children could you try and teach some new language to? They'd learn it, they'd go home and use that language at home and they'd be sort of said, oh, what are you talking like that for? You know, you know, you, we're not, we don't talk like, you know, you, all your highfalutin language in this household, you know, that kind of mentality where certain language, certain things that are sort of, oh, you know, that's not how we're bringing it. And, and so you sort of quickly drop that because, oh, we don't do that. And then you go back to school, back to your old ways. And again, I know that's a simplification, but it must happen, right? On occasion, and I think you're right. That's kind of that point, is it? It's like, just because you try and improve something, it doesn't mean it's not the only, effect, only factor, is it? Just because suddenly you've got new language skills, you might have an environment around you that's, that isn't, that is oppressive. Or you've just got nowhere to, to practice it. You might go home and there's no one there that you can use those skills with. So yeah, you might because, have them, but you never put yeah. them into practice and therefore yeah. they're never really in, properly embed. You're absolutely right. There's plenty of, of um, resistance outside of school to children bettering their vocabulary because in our society, vocabulary is such a marker for class. Mm. I think there's um, there's also, yeah, and there's also the fact that with, with vocabulary it's so tricky because it's like who's like you were saying down this who's vocabulary vocabulary we're all struggling with it's that a word, difficult word. <laughs> christ um but there, there's this there's this notion of um uh, it's jala for brian always talks about it behavior instances are, are often f sort of treated in a sort of rapid question way where you're saying okay why did you do that you know tell me i want to know the truth what happened here tell me exactly what happened and the reticence to do that is sometimes seen as more challenging behavior when actually it's quite complex to recall events quite complex to articulate those events in a way and understand the contextual elements around it and as you get younger and younger and younger age groups it's even harder so i think even the solution even the way we deal with behavior can exacerbate the behavior vocabulary mix if you like but i completely agree with both of you that there's more to it but i think what alex does is 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 present it in a really interesting way and say, okay, there's a link. What can we fix here? You know, where's where's the intervention point? And the intervention point is around vocabulary. And I think at that point, we have to have more diversity in how we treat that. It's not word lists on a knowledge organizer. You know, it's not. It it's the range of words and how they and the range of methods for teaching those words that I think need addressing and some understanding of developmental psychology would be really really handy at this point because I remember my own son didn't start talking to quite late and I was speaking to Courtney Norbury who's a very very good um, psychologist working out of um, oh he's going to catch me now Royal Holloway but um, I think it's Royal Holloway sorry Courtney if that's not true um, but she's uh, she explained to me that actually some kids develop physically first and and then they develop and children develop in different ways and there's you know up to the age of seven there's there's lots of variation and i think we we need to be careful not to label kids as vocabulary challenged from a really young age as well so loads and loads on this issue we've been talking about it extensively and we'll continue to talk about it so please do um check out that feature Okay, so number number three we're going to look at, and this is, and I want to make it clear, this is not a comment on my own position, um, but I'm looking at accidental leaders, those those people who never really thought about um, attaining high office, 
of any stretch. You know, they didn't seek out leadership. They weren't a deputy head at the age of 24 and a head by 26. These are people who, um, I wouldn't say fell into it, but how do you describe it? We should make a note that Gornia hasn't picked her own feature this week. Uh, <laughs> but you, you explain it quite well, don't you, Gornia? Why, why am I bothering? You, 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 you talk about how these teachers find themselves in this position. It's, I think it's really common in schools for people to make an assumption that you will go into leadership, particularly if you're a strong teacher in the classroom. And this has always struck me as something that's really quite bizarre, because if you're a good teacher in the classroom, that means that you're a really good teacher in the classroom, and that's it. It doesn't mean that you're really good at leading people or getting a group of people to to um to like see the school vision and to make brilliant schemes of learning and to drive change through different initiatives. So you often find this kind of falling into the, the role because you do it because it's expected of you and people put you forward for it and say, oh, you should, you should definitely do that. You also have the times in departments. And when I was interviewing people for this piece, this came up more than anything else, that you go for a promotion because you can't stand the thought of someone else being your boss. <laughs> <laughs> if they get it, I don't want them to get it. <laughs> And so people find themselves leading because it's, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. And you also have times in schools because school recruitment and teacher recruitment is so tough, particularly at the moment, you know, we're really struggling to, though not so much this year, we've got a loads of people want to teach this year, but as we have discussed in our news pieces, it might not be such good news for so long, but generally difficult to recruit. So people get asked to step up temporarily. You know, just do this just for a year, just do it for a couple of terms, we can get someone in. So yeah, temporary leaders happen quite a lot in schools. And what I loved about what you did with this piece, Gordon, is you said it's a unique set of challenges, right? Because you don't necessarily have put yourself on the MPQs. You wouldn't have, you know, MPQHs, or you, you wouldn't necessarily have psychologically prepared yourself for this. And then suddenly someone's gone, yep, the job's yours. And you've gone, oh no. <laughs> What the hell am I doing? And it is right, I think, to pinpoint that as as a different set of challenges. You know, you haven't been the through Waterstones management excellence book list and are quoting Daniel Pink one moment and I don't know, someone else the next, some other business guru. It's it's a different set of challenges, right? And it's and it's a different transition, I guess. And uh, this is where Dan tells us about all his accidental leadership positions. Well, you're right. Though. I think I, look, I think I actually think probably ninety percent, maybe eighty percent of people end up as accidental leaders, but in that way that you describe at the start, where people don't set out in their career to have this like I'm going to get to the top and I don't care how I get there. They just kind of get a job at 22 and they do it for a bit, and someone says, "Oh, you should apply for this." Or like you say, they see a job and they give it a go, or they think, "Well, I don't, my, I don't like them," and if they got it, oh, that'd be a nightmare. I'll go for it. Then, and then suddenly, before you know it, you're oh, and now I'm running deputy. I've got budget responsibility, and oh my god! And then you discover that it's all a bit like yeah, just sign it and, you know, if someone, if finance come back, they'll come back to us, but no one never bothers and, okay, now, and now you're running a budget and you seem really competent, but uh, do you know what I mean? I think that's how a lot of the world works is everyone, it's not winging it because that's that implies a sort of complete lack of knowledge, but it's a slight sort of, actually everything just kind of happens and you kind of learn it. But what I thought was so interesting, Gordon, is your point at the start, and this is something I, it's one of my favourite sort of businessy things. I, I really enjoy reading about the world of work. I, I find it fascinating is that thing about, because you're good at one thing, it doesn't mean you're good at the other thing. And people often know because of being good at one thing, they end up doing something else. And there's a term for it called the Peter principle. And it says that everyone rises to their position of least competence, because what it means is you're good. You're a good classroom teacher. So a position opens up above you. And because you're a 
good classroom teacher, for example, people think, oh, that person will be good at being you know, head of department. So you get to be head of department and you are quite good at it and you can. So people think, oh, they'll be good deputy head. But you get to deputy head and you're absolutely rubbish at it. It's too much. You can't cope. The, the demands are too much. The external pressures that come in, are, you're no good at them and that affects your other work. And suddenly, and you're completely hopeless. So everyone kind of goes, oh, we'll, we'll leave them where they are. And, and they don't know what to do and you're stuck and it's hard to get rid of people because you know things just about tick along. But it's because it's like, but you might actually be a brilliant head because then suddenly you've got more people to delegate to or something. And you might actually, actually step back down again. I'll be back in my position where I'm very good. But everyone goes to this. They reach a level. The moment you can't do it, everyone just kind of goes, oh, they can't do it anymore. Leave them. You know, and then that's the point when they need the most help. Um, and obviously it's one of these things where I'm sure people could sort of pick it apart. But it's a, you know, you can read it on Wikipedia. That's how I feel sorry it is. For, I feel sorry for Peter. I, I don't know who the, Peter was, but he really... <laughs> the man who messed up and created <laughs> yeah. a, a principle. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm really going to get you, Peter. But well, that's true, though, isn't it? It's a real one named after you. All the yeah. Yeah. I've never heard that, but it makes perfect sense. It does, doesn't you, it? And you can read you on. Prom- yeah. yeah, you get promoted to your point of weakness, and it's like, and then it's like, oh, he's above his head. Well, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do something about it, you know. But yeah, but it's a fascinating thing, and that does happen, and you see it a lot. I think people who are probably very good at one thing get promoted up, and then they're not good, and people come in and go, "How the hell is this person surviving in that job?" But actually, three years ago, when they were just doing this, they were great, and everything ticks on really nicely, and. There were no problems and they were you know, like, like managing people is a completely unique art. You know, it's not the same as doing your job, is it? If you turn up to talk and do what you have to do, that's one thing. If you've got to manage people and you've got to deal with them, very different. And some people are rubbish at that. You've almost made a really good argument to make Gavin Williamson Prime Minister. <laughs> well, instead of an, a, a, ending this particular section on that note, Gronia, we should give a shout out to all the new leaders who started um, this week and... Uh, everyone feels lost at the start yes school leaders and if you're exact an accidental leader and you feel like what have i done i mean when i started at tez i i probably nearly walked you know i felt like i should quit about 15 different times you know <laughs> in the first six weeks because i was so intimidated by everything that was here and that feeling's natural and then you go on and you just you don't wing it like dan said but you become slowly more comfortable i think mm. is, is what happens so good luck everyone for the for the school year coming up Okay, this is the sort of news round moment, I guess, that we've introduced for this podcast. And and now for something completely different. Like, you know, at the end of news round, they always used to have the sort of, here's a child who's sat in baked beans for a week. And it was just (laughs) a sort of random story at the end. Uh, Shout out to news round. It was a formative experience for us young journalists. Definitely. Um, Carry on. Well, I had a good story about news round, which was... um, um, A friend of someone I used to work with, sorry. They, um, when they were growing up, they were given credits for watching tv as in they were given like you were they were like two hours of tv a week oh i see so, so to, to be used for watching tv yeah not, not credit like, for not... watching tv but like you, you know yeah you how half an hour you can watch bike grave but news <laughs> tomorrow's round was, world would buy you bike grave <laughs> yeah new, news round was free though and i love that i love the idea that they it was like you can watch two hours of tv a week but news round is free because it's news round right and i'd say isn't that a nice isn't that a good policy but the kid, my kids come home and they say, and they'll say something about some current affairs, and I'm like, "How do you know about that?" And I'm like, "I watch News Round in class." I was like, "What?" We would show News Round in form time. News Round is really, really handy. Christian Andrew Murphy, that's why he's um, so popular because he was, of course, on News Round as as a young whippersnapper. Um, anyway, our, our sort of News Round moment, Gornia, comes from cupboards, classrooms. Cupboards and classrooms. So as people return to the classrooms this week with the schools return, obviously in Scotland, you've been back for a while. Good work. And also other counties in England. Good work. I like that. Good work, Scotland. 
well done for being made to go back early. <laughs> We're going back in August. Um, so yes, people, what things you find in your classroom. So I was having a bit of a moan and a dig at uh, my my um, old colleague Ronnie, who listens to this. So having a dig at you, Ronnie, for that time I inherited his classroom. And I had just six bags of recycling at the end of it. So he said, oh, I left you a few resources. I thought you might like them. He did not leave me resources. He left me all the rubbish he didn't want to take with him. And he he uh, relocated. Thanks. Um, so I was just having a bit of a dig at him. Again, in fact. Sorry, Ronnie. Like, please do write me a letter if you feel aggrieved. Sorry, not sorry. Um, yes, so I was having a moment. People started showing what they had found in their classrooms and... I've discovered that teachers are absolutely revolting human beings. <laughs> We've got um, dead mice, 32 years worth of teacher planners all filled in. 32 of those big, thick teacher planners left in a classroom. That's a record of life. That's not a bad thing. That, that, that's Yeah, take it with you. That's citizen history. <laughs> citizen history. Yeah, yeah. Mass observation. <laughs> a dead bird. I feel like the, the dead bird probably wasn't left on purpose. Left like, on purpose, like... clearly. Um, saved soil and dune samples from a coastal environment's fieldwork just in case they needed them that were 10 years old. Oh. Um, a cactus collection, a rock collection, a VHS collection with the last one being a 1998 Tomorrow's World and they don't have any v- VHS machines. <laughs> <laughs> um, six jars of fair trade honey, a black banana that was liquefying, uh, a, pa- a foot-tall paper mache chalice, a church bell rope, and a caveman outfit. Six, no, sorry, nineteen large jars of empty Kenko coffee, just empty. Nineteen. Nineteen. <laughs> Hang on, there's a really revolting one. Tupperware box filled with the bones of chicken wings. Ooh, that's 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 weird. That. It gets worse. Oh no! Somebody found a wig. Is that worse than chicken wings? Surely not. Mm. I would say not, but... Oh, this mm. is the worst one. A colleague's placenta in an ice cream. Oh, come on. No. What? That's not real. How do you forget no, that? Not real. Not real. Someone's lying. Yeah, that's a, t- that's a, a predictive text gone wrong. They meant, they meant that type of ham that sounds a bit like placenta. Isn't there a type um, of... Someone found a banana that had been there for over a year. Did you have you ever have you ever done that though? Actually, left a banana somewhere. That one, I can forgive that one because I've done that. Not a year, maybe, but you you suddenly remember there's a banana at the bottom of. The... I mean, that person that finds like a year old banana is pretty. You know, close. like when you used to come back from Christmas uh, Christmas holidays, as it were, at work, and you come back and a cup of tea that someone had made and hadn't washed up was still there for like, two weeks later, and the and the sp- there were spores in the mug. You know what I mean? You'd have that kind of going on. I'm disappointed. No one's gone like quite figurative on it and said. They left me a overwhelming sense of underachievement or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know those three drawer filing got, cabinets you, that you get? I've got one more. Okay, this, is, one this one is my last one. one. Good. Oh, no. A personal letter detailing court appearances for Ford. <laughs> that's the best one. <laughs> that's, that's quite bizarre. But, yeah, you can, uh, you can find uh, the thread and read it. It just goes on and amazing. on and on, and they're, they're increasingly more disgusting and revolting or baffling. Um, yeah. That's that. I mean, I mean, we've gone from congratulating new head teachers and wishing them luck to calling teachers horrific. Uh, chicken wings, we... though. Old eat chicken bones that you've eaten. Come that, on, that is something. Come else. on, teachers. All the others, I can, I can sort of forgive in there because it's pretty sort of, you know, they're not. But that is just. But before we judge, I mean, what's the oldest thing in your cupboards? 
I mean, at the back of the cupboard, there's always something that shouldn't be there. We've got a lot of paint that for some reason we haven't thrown away. I don't really know why we're keeping it. There's all these paint jars that tins that are like, you know, half empty or half full. And they're just there. And we're never going to use them again, I presume. Just keep them for comfort. I don't want to keep them, really. They're just there. Never throw them away. <laughs> well, tell us all your um, horror, horrors of the classroom. I'm for sure Gronya would like to hear more. Um, but we'll we'll be back next week with another with another podcast hopefully minus horrible chicken wings and Tupperware <laughs> boxes but we can't guarantee that so um, we'll see you all next week if you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store